0: Hello again. Dick Foth here with stories to make sense of it all. And it's Thanksgiving week, 2021. And I'm so excited. Looking forward to that meal with all the trimmings. And if I can talk Ruth into one of her apple pies, it could just be, you know, I could die a happy man. And uh, she says it's just a Betty Crocker recipe. And I'm saying Betty doesn't do it better than this. So That's what I'm looking forward to and hope you folks are able to have that kind of experience yourself along the way. Rather than do an original podcast right here, I'm going to do something that I haven't done before in these four years of podcasting. I'd just like to drop in a message that I spoke a few years ago at Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. On Thanksgiving, and it's called Thanks for the Invitation. So I will leave the message to speak for itself, no pun intended. Here it is. Good morning. Thanksgiving, biggest travel week of the year. You travel, you have food, take a nap, have food, say hi have food, I love it. I'm thankful on Thanksgiving week for lots of things, but today in particular, as I speak to you, I want to talk about being invited. I'm thankful for being invited to things. And I'll explain that as we go forward. Some of you are saying, you're a little gussied up, aren't you, compared to what you usually, you got the tie and all that. This is my fall Thanksgiving tie. Actually, this is Charlie White's tie. Some of you have heard me tell the story of Charlie White. Charlie White was a Navy sub commander, and he was a chief of staff on Capitol Hill, and he passed away about 20 years ago. And afterwards, his wife came to me, Mary, and said, Charlie's got a lot of ties. Why don't you come see, because you wear your ties every day in D.C. You know, we lived there 15 years. So I went out, and out of all of his ties, I picked this one, because it has a little pizzazz, and it's Cool, and, and Charlie, just a few months before he went home to Jesus, responded to his invitation, Jesus' invitation, and so I'm wearing this in honor of Charlie today. If uh, at Thanksgiving, Ruth, my wife, loves puzzles, she'll uh, put back the tablecloth a little bit on the dining room table, get the grandkids, and they'll do puzzles, 300-piece puzzles, 500-piece puzzles, 1,000-piece, makes me crazy. How many puzzle people do we have here, Yule? Oh, a lot of puzzle people. I just don't have the patience for I do three pieces, and say, I'll look at the picture on the box, so let's not do this, you know? <clears throat> so the puzzle, if, if this were a puzzle, my talk, um, I would say scripture is going to be at the center, and then around it will be some American history, and will be some, a story, a story of a kid from Pennsylvania, okay? So I want to get started. And those of you who are taking notes in the bulletin, we won't get there for several minutes, so don't have your pen poised. I'll tell you, when we get there, it'll be good, okay? Two years ago, I introduced you to my friend Max Finberg from Washington, D.C., who whenever you said to him, Max, how are you? He'd say, I'm alive and grateful. Anybody remember when we... And so... And I said, where'd you get that? He said, well, I go to an African-American church in downtown D.C. And our pastor, Dr. Sam Hines, would always say that. So the whole congregation would say that. So I'd say that. I just thought we might as well go back and let's do it again. So I'm going to say, how are you? And your response will be, I'm alive and great. It's just a great response. It'll be on the screen. Are you ready? Here we go. How are you? I'm alive and great. Once more, a little more punch. How are you? I'm alive and great. Doesn't that feel good? It's terrific. And it's true. See, what I'd like to do is to now have us say the lyrics in a worship mode to a 3,000-year-old Hebrew song. We call it a psalm. It's Psalm 100, and it's about Thanksgiving. And rather than me just reading it to you, why don't we just say it as a congregation? Words will be on the screen. Give it some punch, give it some gusto, because it's a great, and you're not doing it for me. You're singing it to God. Here we go, you're saying it. Please don't start singing. Just go with the saying, okay? Here we go. Shout to the joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us. We are His. We are His people the sheep of his pasture, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Hear, hear. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's a good place to clap. <clears throat> thankful people, all the studies show this, thankful people are healthier, live longer, and have more friends. So why wouldn't we want to be thankful? Why wouldn't we want to practice that? Sometimes we learn to be thankful, often we learn to be thankful because of the hard times. Sometimes when we feel like we're on the edges or the margins, we, uh, we find out that we can be thankful. The way we find that out, if we're on the margins of things, is when somebody does this one thing, when somebody invites us in. Jesus is big on inviting people in. Luke 14 is a chapter that's really about sitting at table in Middle Eastern culture. The table was and is to this day sort of a center point of Middle Eastern culture. Who you sat with, who you ate with, who you invited was all about identity, okay? And Jesus in Luke 14, and I I encourage you to read the whole chapter, it's not long. He has three sort of exhortations and then a big story, a parable about a great banquet where where people are invited and they beg off and the host gets upset and says, go out and get the people who are crippled and lamed and blind and have them come, the people on the margins. But this is what he says before he tells that story. Luke fourteen twelve. then Jesus said to his host, when you give a lunch and a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You'll, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I'll come back to those thoughts in just a moment, but let me, let me just come back to thanksgiving which is uniquely american. It's not exclusively american, but you say where did that come from? You say well the puritans when then yes, but it wasn't formalized until 1863. Abraham Lincoln created a proclamation for Thanksgiving because a woman, a 74-year-old woman magazine editor named Sarah Josepha Hale wrote him a letter and said we need to have a day of Thanksgiving every year, and so Abraham Lincoln wrote a proclamation, this is part of it. We have gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of these United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. You say, well, that's cool. That's good, You like he talked about God and everything. It's crazy for this reason, and I put crazy in quotes. This was October 1863 in the middle of the Civil War. 90 days before, there was a battle at this little town in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg. It was the turning point in the war. 116,000 soldiers on the field 10,000 died almost 40,000 wounded it was horrific and in the middle of this upheaval in our culture the worst war we've ever had in terms of casualties more than any other the war more than all the other wars combined 600 to 700,000 people died in the middle of that Abraham Lincoln at the encouragement of this lady says why don't we as a nation give thanks that's what you call swimming upstream. That's what you call seeing something larger than the moment. It's in the hard times we learn to think. So, lots of folks know about Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. If this is a map of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia's over here, Pittsburgh's over here, Gettysburg's about in the center down toward the Maryland line. 140 miles to the northwest, near Pittsburgh, is a town called La Trobe. If you're a golfer and you follow golf at all, and you like Arnold Palmer, That was his boyhood home. But there's another kid born the year before Arnie, who grew up in that town. His name was Fred. Fred was a sickly boy. He had asthma, had rheumatic fever, couldn't go outside alone to play when he was small. And while Arnie hit golf balls at age five, Fred learned to play the piano at age five. He spent much of his life in his own bedroom. This is is Fred when he was a bit older. And um, he he called himself a little chubby kid. Kids made fun of him, taunted him. He was alone a lot, and when he was alone a lot, he sort of you know when you're alone, you create your own world a lot of times, especially when you're small. And he created a world with uh, stuffed animals and some puppets and stuff like that. But he was a really good musician. He loved to visit his grandpa. His grandpa on his mother's side was Grandpa McFeely. One day grandfather McFeely after a day with Fred, young Freddie said to him this, "You know, you made this day a really special day. Just by being yourself. There's only one person in the world like you, and I happen to like you just the way you are." Freddie never forgot that. He was shy, he was introverted, He started gaining confidence, he got to high school, but a great thing happened. At high school, the captain of the football team befriended him. He invited Freddie in. And by the time Freddie was a senior, they elected Freddie's student body president at his high school. He graduated, went to college, got married, moved back to Pittsburgh, got involved in educational TV, As a puppeteer, he was always a thankful person. And while working in TV, he decided to go to seminary and became a Presbyterian minister. And he was ordained in 1863 at the age of 35. And this was the charge that was given to him when they laid hands on him. You can read it on the screen. We charge you to shake us through a God who involves himself in our world into the world where he already is. This world of TV cameras, of puppets, of children, of parents, of studios, of directors, of actors, this too is God's world. We as the church charge that you speak to us to disturb us. We charge you to speak to us to remind us that we too, through you, must be involved. That was 1963. Then came 1968, 105 years after Gettysburg. But 1968 was another kind of civil war. Some of you may remember 1968. Historians, American historians say that's one of the worst years in U.S. history. Started out late January when the USS Pueblo naval vessel was captured by the North Koreans, 82 guys held for a year. And it went on in March of that year. Robert Kennedy said he was gonna run for president against the sitting president from his own party, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Two weeks later, LBJ said he wouldn't run. Four days after that, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. And when that happened, the world exploded. In 110 cities across the United States, people poured into the streets. There were riots, cities were set on fire. The heart of Washington D.C. and the inner city virtually burned down 13,000 National Guardsmen on the streets. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy won the California primary. On June the 5th, as he was walking out of the Americana Hotel in Los Angeles, he was assassinated. Later they had riots at the Democratic National Convention and it went on and on and on. Almost unnoticed. February 19th of that year, Freddie. Walked into a public television studio in Pittsburgh, WQED, put on a cardigan sweater, spoke quite slowly, because he knew that for little people, you need to leave space. Because little people don't process as quickly as big people. It was simple. It was hokey. Everything you think about good television, it was the opposite. It was like having a Thanksgiving proclamation in the middle of the Civil War. His name was Fred McFeely Rogers, and the world would never be the same. When our world was coming apart at the seams, this quiet, quirky man from La Trobe brought a different lens. He offered small children two worlds, a real world and an imaginary world, a world of make-believe. And those two worlds, four-year-olds already have. They're all blurred together when you're four years old. Through those worlds, he taught little people and parents Biblical ideas, what's important, how to see other people, how to deal with hard things. Two or three days after Bobby Kennedy's assassination, two assassinations in eight weeks, a hand puppet said to a human being on the program, tell me, what does assassination mean? You say, how can you talk to a four-year-old about such things? Well, Fred McFeely Rogers did because he said, that's their world too. And if they can learn to express their feelings in ways that are appropriate and don't hurt other people, that's what we want them to learn. He taught them how to think about life, how to be kind. He thought if you could provide an environment where they could be who they were, awesome things could happen. He worked with an early childhood specialist, University of Pittsburgh, Margaret McFarland, and this was her saying, what's human is mentionable, and what's mentionable is manageable. Fred uh, thought simplicity was a virtue. Simple was a virtue. Fancy was suspect. Simple was pure. Fancy was exhausting. What he used to say a lot was from the book The Little Prince, which is a biblical idea, what is essential is invisible to the eyes. I'll never forget my first meeting with Richard Halverson, chaplain of the U.S. Senate back in 93 when I went to D.C., and he said, always remember, Dick, that the kingdom of God is mostly invisible. You don't know what's going on in that person's heart, what God is doing. It's mostly invisible. That space that he created is called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. If you're old enough, you remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. If you're over 21, you remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I love the tagline. It said, for preschoolers, but appropriate for all ages. I love that. Good TV programs last six, eight years. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood lasted 33 years. From 68 to 71, at the peak in the 85, 86, 1.6 million homes viewed Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood every day. If you have two or three kids at home, three generations of children, millions of children. listened to him talk. Today it's continued in Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, animated form. Fred McFeely Rogers was a genius. He created the sets, he wrote most of the scripts, he wrote most of the songs, including the theme song. A friend said this about him. Fred Rogers was a lanky six-foot guy, utterly devoid of pretense. He liked to pray, to play the piano, to swim and to write, and he somehow lived in a different world than I, a world of simple words and deceptively simple concepts, and a slowness that allowed for silence, focus, and joy. He wasn't a Superman. He wasn't like Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or a Marvel character or an Avenger. He wasn't any. For Pete's sake, he was a guy in a cardigan sweater and tennis shoes. What could a guy like that do? Apparently, just about everything. You say, is this message about Jesus or Mr. Rogers? And I say to you, Yes. Because you are the Jesus to a lot of people. The Jesus in you comes out in how kind you are or how much time you take to listen. In creating that scenario, he was swimming upstream. It was like suggesting Thanksgiving in the middle of the Civil War, inviting people to dinner who were outcasts. He had been commissioned to disturb, but he did it so gently, you just didn't know what was happening day after day. It's like, I met this guy when I was at kids camp. I was 10 years old. His name was Roy Blakely. You've heard me speak of him before because he became my father-in-law some years later. But at his memorial service, an architect who had come to faith because of Roy said, Roy would come up. He was like an elephant. And he'd stand beside you. And then he'd just start ever so gently leaning. And after a while, you thought you were going, and you were going over there. You didn't even know you were going over there because Droy was just, that was Mr. Rogers, day after day, day after day. And this is why I like the idea of invitations. Mr. Rogers' theme song asks an inviting question. Some of you remember his theme song. It asks an inviting question. If he were here in Larimer County today, it could be, that his theme song would sound and look, with a little help from my friend Richard Flores, would look like this. If you know it and you want to sing along, go for it.
1: It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be my could you be mine it's a neighborly day in this beauty wood a neighborly day for a beauty would you be mine could you be mine i've always wanted to have a neighbor just Be my
0: neighbor. I think I heard even a couple of guys singing on that. I just... <laughs> you can clap for that. Okay. Those of you who have been poised waiting for the bulletin notes, now's your time. Here we go. He asks this question, Please, won't you be my neighbor? And generations have responded to that question. By the way, two movies in the last 18 months have come out on Fred Rogers' life. He's been gone 16 years. And one opens this weekend. I've never gone to an opening. I went to it. It is amazing. I don't pump movies from the, you know, I don't. But it is, it is true to who he is, okay? Um, and I say, why would Hollywood do that? Well, Bucks, Sure. But there are two questions, two things, that are suggested in his question, and they're these. These aren't the questions. These are the statements. One, we want to be valued. Human beings want to be valued. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I think I just like to go out, go to work and get spit on. Nobody wants that. We want to bring value, to have value. I loved it when I first came here 10, 11 years ago when I heard Pastor Derry said to the pastoral team, when you walk into a room, do you want your presence to say, well, here I am, or do you want your presence presence to say, well, there you are? That's one of those value questions. Well, there you are. Fred Rogers would get up every morning, most of his adult life, and swim 100 laps or, excuse me, not swim 100, swip lab, swim lap, laps, I'll get it right, swim laps. Say that 50 times fast. Swim laps for an hour. He looked sort of wimpy, but I'd say he's a stud. I'm just saying that. Okay? And then he would read Scripture, and then he would pray. He kept a notebook, legal pad, I think, of people, and he would pray out loud for them by name. Because prayer doesn't set your value. What prayer does is it recognizes your value. When you say to me, Dick, I'd like to pray for you, I'd say, cool. Because what you're saying to me is I think you're so valuable and your need is so real that when I speak to the creator of the universe this morning or this afternoon, I'd like to bring your name up. Prayer does not set value, it acknowledges value. Secondly, we want to be welcomed. Everybody wants to be welcomed. I used to go to those congressional receptions, they have a 50 a night, and I used to go there and I just would pray that there'd be somebody there that I knew who would see me across a crowded room and say, Dick, come over here, you know, because you want to be invited in. The place to invite people naturally, and especially at this Thanksgiving time as we think about it, you know, it's sort of in the foreground, and I'm not saying you have to do this at Thanksgiving, I'm just saying this is the idea. When you invite somebody to a meal, the word company comes from "companis," which means with bread. It's a thing that's done around the world. It's always with the times. It's always current. Nobody says when you invite them over for dinner, did you come over for dinner? Nobody says, oh, that's so old school. (laughs) We used to do that, but that's out of date now. It's never out of date to invite people to table. It's a gift from my person to yours. We used to go to Thanksgiving at my grandma and grandpa's house in Dinuba, California when I was a boy. That was 90 miles from Oakland. And I knew, I always knew what my grandma would have. I've told you this before. She would have turkey and and she'd have fresh homemade biscuits and fresh honey and pineapple freezer ice cream. I can see it in my mind now. I kind of want it now, but I got to finish this message. (laughs) But But the scriptures are full of meal moments, starting from Genesis. God says in Genesis 9, I give you all living things. Genesis 9, 3. Give you Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you just as I gave you green plants and I'll give you everything. Adam and Eve, they were orchardists, if you will. Cain and Abel sort of had a food fight that didn't end well, okay? <laughs> Moses leading the Israelites out. For years he's in the desert. And they're thinking about food in Egypt and Jesus' first miracle at a wedding feast. The largest recorded miracle in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. I love it when he comes back after the crucifixion. He shows he's human by eating broiled fish with his disciples. And then there's that peace with Peter on the beach when he restores him. So when Jesus talks about table, again, I want to read it to you one more time. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, sisters, relatives, because they can invite you back. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. They cannot repay you. He's suggesting this great disturber who Jesus is. He's suggesting that they invite not people of their class, not by the traditions they're used to, not by what their culture says, because the culture says if I invite you, the deal is you're supposed to invite me back. It's always reciprocated. That's what the culture around the world says. And Jesus comes along and says, why don't we turn that on its head and do the kingdom of God thing and invite people who can't invite you back? This idea is Jesus invited guests who cannot invite him back. That's in your notes. And they became transforming moments. Think of Simon Peter. Had failed so miserably. Shot off his mouth. Couldn't produce. I so identify with Peter. I promise so much more than I can produce. Could Simon Peter ever eat fire-roasted tilapia, probably that was the fish again, without remembering breakfast on the beach with Jesus as he stood there. He just swum the equivalent of a football field to get to Jesus. And he's standing there humbled, sopping wet, and Jesus, fourth paraphrase, says, come over here, let's eat together, Peter. I like you just the way you are. At a beachside table, he embraces this fallen, rugged man, and Peter will never be the same, and we can never be the same. So today, what about the meal today? Where's the table gone in our culture? We have an epidemic of loneliness. Everything you read says that, especially with young people. Could it be that the table is disappearing? Sherry Turkle, who's a Psychologist at MIT has studied this a lot, and she says this We know that for children, the greatest predictor of success later in life is the number of meals shared with their families. Now, with little people, that's a huge deal, and you're sort of in control. When they get bigger, teenagers, that's it's not really—that's that, a negotiated piece a lot of times. But with little people there, you said, well, why would you talk about table? You should have been at my table. You talk about food fights. Man, we had a, you know, I love that book that's about family life that's entitled where two or three are gathered together, someone spills his milk. I love that title. <laughs> but even if you struggle at the table, Pete, that's my seat. Don't, you eat all the potatoes, so I never get a chance, you know. What you learn at table is how to deal with life. What you learn is how to have conversations that have commas in them that you can pick up the next evening. That's what the table does. An invitation to the table says, step into my life. Invitation to the table says, step into my life. When you invite me over to eat, it's not just roast or potatoes or chili rellenos, not just curry or lasagna. It's not just apple pie or ice cream. That's my life you're ingesting there, or my life, your life, I'm ingesting. In a jaded, often cynical world, Mr. Rogers' question, won't you be my neighbor? I like you just the way you are. All those things he said were profound. He didn't call us out like it's so common today. He called us to something. He was a great inviter. I've seen two iconic inviters in my life, people of faith, who were in the media. One was Billy Graham, and one was Fred McFeely Rogers, inviting different cores of people, but the same kind of invitation. And Hollywood even couldn't get past it. So 29 years after the program came on, they gave Fred McFeely Rogers a Lifetime Achievement Award. He's there with his wife, Joanne, and this is that moment.
2: gentlemen, the best neighbor any of us has ever had, Fred Rogers. It is my honor on behalf of everyone here, and on behalf of the millions of children whose mornings you have brightened with your kindness to present you with this Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, it's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. So many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here, some are far away, some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take, along with me, 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? Those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life. 10 seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. Whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. You know, they're the kind of people television does well to offer our world. Special thanks to my family and friends, and to my co-workers in public broadcasting, family communications, and this academy for encouraging me, allowing me All these years to be your neighbor. May God be with you. Thank you very much.
0: And so Jesus sits at the table and he rebukes the people who didn't think about neighbor, who didn't think about inviting the people on the margins in. They were making judgments they had no right to make because God's already made a judgment. His judgment is this, I made you in my image. You may have wandered from the dream I have for you, but I'll come to you to provide a way back to me. Who then is invited? Well, the great unwashed are invited. The great unwanted, those who mask their personalities or those who've been disappointed by life or disappointed by themselves. People like me, we're invited. It's a freeze frame of heaven at the end of the book the end of the Bible in Revelation Jesus describes his mission this way to us here I am I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me what Jesus comes to my table and invites me to his? What an invitation. Man, I'm thankful for that invitation. My instinct is, is to say, can I, can I bring anything? He says, well, as a matter of fact, you can. Why don't you bring yourself and your wounds and your hurts and your mads and your disappointments and your shattered dreams and your hopes. And why don't you put them here at the table and let's swap them out. Let's do that. When I was a kid growing up in Oakland, my mom would say, Dick, it's time for dinner. Go get cleaned up and come to the table. And that's good. That's hygiene. That's good. Jesus comes into my world and says, Dick, like you to come to my table and I'm saying okay I'll I'll go get clean because I'm not and he says why don't you just come to my table and I'll clean you up as you come why don't you do that and we'll just be neighbors here at the table let's bow our hearts and our heads in prayer In the silence of this moment, I'd like to do something just a little different, and that is, I'd like us, as we spoke to the Lord in scripture to start, I'd like to have us speak to Him together out loud in prayer at the end. And I'd like just to lead us. I remember sitting in Charlie White's front room, and Charlie said, If I come to God at 64, I haven't paid any attention to Him at all. Isn't He going to be mad? I said, no, he'll be glad, he won't be mad. And I just like to invite you to follow me out loud and for all of us, if you've never done anything like this before, well, good on you, this is your chance. And if you've done this a 100 times, what joy this is. I'm just gonna lead us in short phrases and pause in between and just follow me out loud here we go. Here I am Lord you know me better than I know me I sit here today thankful that you have invited me I give as much as I know of me to as much as I can understand of you. Thank you for asking me. I come with joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Praying for you all that your thanksgiving will be rich and fruitful and connected. Thank you for taking the time to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you might be listening on at this moment. And please know that I'm thankful for you today. That's it for now. Dick Foth, signing off. Catch you next time. God bless.